Good evening, ladies, and how are you this evening? You can all shout at once. Wonderful. Very well, thank you, Sue. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Jolly good. Well, as I said to the listeners that we are reviewing this month, The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. Now, when the book arrived, it, this was Jean's choice. It was so thick, and I thought, I'm never going to get this through in a month because I'm incredibly busy. And although you can always make time for reading, but reading is not something that relaxes me. It's not a chore because I love reading. I love books because I have to do it for book club and I'm set to a deadline. It's a bit like work. So when it arrived, I thought I'm never going to get through this. So I read the first few chapters. That's as far as I got. And I'll tell you why I didn't continue later on. So first of all, I will give you a review, a positive review of the book and then a negative review of the book. So it'll be very interesting to get your comments. I, I tend to feel where I know you're all going to go, but here we go. This is a positive review from Stephanie Merritt from The Guardian. The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel is the final novel in Mantel's Cromwell trilogy, is true to form another masterpiece. When Hilary Mantel gave her BBC lectures in 2017 on the subject of historical fiction, she was asked by one audience member if she was really writing ghost stories. She replied emphatically, yes, almost before he had finished the question. Ghosts have peopled in her fiction from her first novel, Every Day is Mother's Day, and her memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, made clear how permeable the boundary between the living and the dead can seem. It's been eight years since the publication of Bring Up the Bodies, for which Mantel won a second Booker Prize, but we find Cromwell exactly where we left him. In May 1536, at the moment of the French executioner had struck off Anne Boleyn's head with his sword. Cromwell is much taken with this sword, Toledo steel, incised with the words of a prayer. It is only later in the book that we learn the words on the blade, which means mirror of justice, pray for us. It's one of the many references to both mirrors and light stitched subtly throughout the book. The question of whether Anne and the men executed for adultery with her received justice is one that haunts many of the characters in the novel, not least the king and Cromwell himself. But the dead are not absent. In the Tower of London, Cromwell sees shades of the men whose deaths he contrived and feels their company when he steps into his barge. At night, he hears footsteps in his bedroom and dreams of Anne's execution as if it's part of a series of altar paintings. The answer he gives Henry, go forward, sir. It's the one direction God permits. Might be taken as his personal credo, but Cromwell's path forward takes him along a knife's edge. Anne's death has not made his own position more secure. It feels redundant to state that The Mirror and the Light is a masterpiece. With this trilogy, Mantell has redefined what the historical novel is capable of. She has given it muscle and sinew, enlarged its scope and created a prose style that is lyrical and colloquial, at once faithful to its time and entirely recognisable to us. Taken together, her Cromwell Nevers are, for my money, the greatest English novels of this century. Someone give the Booker Prize judges the rest of the year off. Well, that is a statement, isn't it? The greatest English novels of this century. Be interested to get your thoughts on that, ladies. And now, the negative review is from Daniel Mendelssohn from The New Yorker. Bring Up the Bodies ends in the summer of 1536, just after Anne's beheading, 
and Henry's marriage to his third wife, Jane Seymour. That leaves the short but eventful remainder of Cromwell's life still to be narrated. He was executed in July 1540 for treason and heresy, after his enemies among the old nobility succeeded in convincing the ever more paranoid Henry that he was aiming to depose him and take the throne. The mirror and the light does cover those years, but the tightly symmetrical trajectories that organized the first two volumes and generated their morals and meanings have gone. No surprise then that the new book, 754 pages long, complete with a seven page list of dramatis personae is Mantle's longest yet. Unfortunately, it's beyond even her skill to hold these desperate happenings together. And the resulted is a bloated and only occasionally captivating work. Although it's highly unlikely that Cromwell ever intended to depose Henry, as his accusers maintained, Mantell effectively suggests the way in which, as time passed and Henry became increasingly erratic, his minister may well have become dangerously overconfident. By the time you get to Cromwell's execution, a brilliantly imagined moment, and perhaps the best single scene here, the incidents and details, all no doubt with some basis in history, have overwhelmed any discernible pattern. I found my attention wandering more than once as I made my way through an elaborate description of a court entertainment, a subplot involving an anonymous gift to Cromwell of a leopard and a visit to baby Elizabeth, who's cranky because she's teething and even started to wander, a thought unimaginable during my reading of the first two books, whether this particular historical figure really merits nearly 2,000 pages of fiction. But for all the additional events it relates, nothing in The Mirror and the Light is really new, or I should say really novel. The great quantity of matter here will no doubt satisfy fans of both the Tudors and Mantell, but since when was that the point? If an author has told a tale well, given it a firm shape and delineated its themes, brought its hero sufficiently to life to leave an indelible impression, she's done her job. Everything else is just words, words, words. I suspect for Mantell's admirers, this novel is a question of the king's new clothes. This novel is overlong, bloated and rather boring, a real disappointment. Right, so two very, very different reviews, ladies. So let's go to Jean first, who recommended this long book. I can't wait for it to be Tellers because I know I will absolutely love the, uh, the adaptation of it. I found it very wordy. I couldn't get into it, but I'm sure that Jean absolutely adored it. So off you go, Jean. First of all, before you start, before we start, can you just tell me your opinion of the two reviews, first of all? The two reviews, I think the first one's got it right. I think the second one, he's American. I hate to say this, they don't get it. Oh, rubbish. Absolute rubbish, Jean. So, she, you, so you, you, you agree with Stephanie by saying this is the greatest English novel of the century? I, I believe it will be perceived like James Joyce, Ulysses, but nobody reads, but everybody talks about. They talk about why, that. Why don't people read Ulysses? What reason? Because it's 60 pages without a punctuation mark of Molly Bloom's interior monologue, which is quite rude and it's very Irish. And you could almost say it's anti-Semitic. No one does say that, but I think it is somewhat anti-Semitic. It's just my view of it. It is a great book because it was 
totally different. You had the total abandonment of time and place and the setting, and you had to just sort of guess where you were. And it all revolves around one day in the life of Mr. Bloom, um, who is Jewish, but he's a Catholic convert. Anyway, that's James Joyce. This is modernist writing as it should be. It's no sense of time or place, really. I mean, you don't really know where you are. You know you're at court. Sometimes you know which court. Sometimes you don't. And sometimes you're just in Thomas Cromwell's mind. But even so, and it's present tense. don't usually like present tense, but I think it will be seen. The Three Together, which is a trilogy, I think will be seen as a masterpiece of historical fiction in a 100 years. I just do, because there is nothing else like it, because it's just so long. Now, I have a feeling, he says it was a thousand whatever words. Her first book, Wolf Hall, was 653 pages long. The second one, Ring Up the Bodies, was 485. And this one, he said it was 754. Well, it wasn't. It was 883. <laughs> and it's the fattest book I've ever seen, apart from maybe Harry Potter. But I think that she didn't want to let him go. I think she couldn't bear it. I thought she had to hang on to him, and so she kept writing. And she thought, I must finish this. No, I can't. Did your mind wander at any point? Well, probably, but, but it didn't really because it was so interesting. It was like you were there. And she's got a waspish sense of humour. She had bits like the heirs to the throne. She talks about Richmond being made heir. All Henry's three children are, are now bastards. We might, might as well prefer the male. At least Richmond can sit on a horse and draw a sword, which is better than Lady Mary, who looks like a dwarf, and Eliza, who's still of an age to soil herself in public, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> It's true, it's not meant to be funny, really. In actual fact, why I think it's going to be seen as a great piece of writing is because it's really about the Reformation. Cromwell has he's spent his whole life trying to make Protestant, um, Protestantism stick. And, of course, the King Henry is basically... He's only reforming the church because he wants to get rid of his wives, purely and simply. But um, Thomas Cromwell believes in the reading England of Rome, the influence of the Pope, of indulgences, of priests who live well at other people's expense. And the fact that you can, um, I think, and the, the other thing about this, of course, is that Henry Mandel is a Catholic. And I don't think it could be written by somebody who wasn't, because she understands things like purgatory, well, Catholicism, put it that way. It's really about the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and the burnings. And, of course, after you have Edward VI, who dies young, you have Mary, who tries to turn the clock back and make the country Catholic again. So you have all the burnings at Smithfield, which were amazing when I mean, they were so graphic. It was awful. I mean, you were there, weren't you? When somebody was rendered into fat and they were sort of basted. Um, it was just amazing, really. Um, so I don't believe that the American critic actually read it properly. Well, he definitely didn't understand English history. Oh, come on, Jean. He didn't. <laughs> You knocked that you knocked the last one because she was an American, and now you're knocking that review because he's American. If I said he was Daniel Mendelssohn from the Times, what would you have said to that? He still got it wrong. 
<laughs> okay. It's, just, it's only my opinion anyway. Yes, of course. Which you are absolutely entitled to, Jean Fairbairn. What did you get from Hilary Mantel's novel that, and this may be a very naive question, that you wouldn't have got from an historical writer who just writes facts, not stories? What you get is the sense of being there. You've got the food, you've got the sense of everyone jostling around the king, trying to putting women in front of him, like Catherine Howard, who was a young flippity-jib, and she was sort of put before the king. Lost her head, of course, because he was basically an old man, a fat man, with a um, saw on his leg, and he actually couldn't do the act half the time. But this is all historical fact. But so what you are saying is that, that something like Hilary Mantel, who puts everything into a novel, it just brings you into, um, in, into the time that you are there at court. Absolutely, yeah. And because it's written in the present tense. And you've got, it's a bit like the Hamlet, but it's much longer, obviously. You, yes, you, much, much, much longer. Yeah. <laughs> you've got the food, just being there, the um, physical five senses approach again as i said earlier on i will very much look forward to the television adaptation with cromwell played by what's his name what was his name ryland oh Ryland, yeah the, the... what's his first name oh. mark. mark ryland who i thought was brilliant as cromwell and how long did it take you to read that very long book well i actually read it in bed on my kindle that's very brave of you alison was looking after my book that I bought it took her a bit longer than she thought so um, I kept reading my Kindle which is okay because you don't know where you are on a Kindle no you don't which, which is so frustrating yeah. to say the least but it's also quite useful because then you don't get worried because you, you <laughs> don't know where you are <laughs> okay you just keep flicking the page all right Jean so a great fan you thought it was wonderful you think it's going to be part of a tragedy that in 100 years time will just go down as one of the greatest novels of this century yeah i'm gonna stick okay. there interest yeah very much so okay so alice right well okay um <laughs> yes it took me longer than i thought it was going to take me now books normally take me a couple of days to read this took me a couple of weeks <laughs> it did it's a very very long book um, yeah, two and a half inches thick, six centimetres in new money. So, <laughs> yeah, I made it 875 pages long, but then okay. that, that included the <clears throat> list of characters. Oh. So there was a lot of those and lots of them with similar names. So it was quite difficult to keep in who he was talking about in your head. I did get a little bit confused in places. Yes, uh -huh. I mean, I don't know really. I it's If you enjoy history... If you enjoy the Tudor period, if you enjoy Henry VIII, it's all very enlightening and there's lots of fantastic historical facts. I mean, she must have done so much research for this, this novel. I mean, her intention to historical detail is, was just amazing. It's quite mind-blowing what she's written, basically. And I, th I think I would agree with the, the first one. I think it was a masterpiece, really. Um, it was beautifully written. You were sort of watching these people's lives unfold, but you did need stamina to finish it. But I thought it was worth persevering with, and that's why I did actually get to the end of it. And uh, as Jean says, the present tense, actually, I thought was a quite a clever way of doing it because it sort of made it more immediate, more relevant to you as a person, you know, in this time, even though it was sort of set almost 600 years ago. And and also she, she did, she really did have a great sense of, 
place there. You, know, you when you're reading it, the dialogue and she really sort of did transport you up back into that time period. You really felt that you were watching over his shoulder at all the things that he was doing. So I, I mean, I thought that was brilliant. I mean, he she had some funny lines as well. If God had meant us to wear colourful clothes, he would have made coloured sheep, which I thought was quite <laughs> funny. And something I, I didn't know this expression, but shorter by head, and then I suddenly twigged that this is where the expression comes from when the start of the of the novel when Anne Boleyn loses her head so she was shorter by her head and it never it's the first time I it actually clicked <laughs> that that's where it came from so another one that I thought was quite nice was um London's walls are ornamental these days you could knock them down with a dirty look so that was when the rebels were threatening to attack the city of London so that was a sort of throwaway comment that I thought was quite nice and um, another one which I thought was quite good was size like a farm girl in a feather bed. So, <laughs> so she has, I mean, she has got some fantastic sort of little, wonderful little lines in there as well. You know, so she also mentions Hinchingbrook Priory. And I thought that was quite interesting because if you go round Hinchingbrook School on their ghost walks, they do actually have two skeletons in the library. Do they? So, Yes, they do. Um, of what? Of whom? Of whom? Human skeletons in the library in at, at the school. In the it's where the sixth form is. But these skeletons, they reckon that these skeletons were put there in in Victorian times. They don't reckon that they do go back Elizabethan period. But she does mention them um, in the novel, so I thought that was quite interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. So yes, yeah, so that's that's basically or most of the things that I've got to say about it. Very okay. long, but I think it is worth persevering with if you enjoy that sort of historical novel. If and you don't like the Tudors and you don't like Henry VIII, then don't pick it up because, you know. So did you read the first two? No. The trilogy? No. no. So this is, so, so has yeah, this, this encouraged you? Has this whetted your appetite to read the first two? Absolutely not. Right. <laughs> I'm afraid not. It, I okay. have to say, I did feel it was a, I felt it was a chore reading this book. And the only reason I did finish it was because I wanted to, to finish it for book group and to actually right. get to the end of it. I'm glad okay. I did finish it because I say it was worth persevering. Well, the very last scene was quite emotional and um, it was when he, you know, you know, spoiler alert here, he does get beheaded at the end. And that I was... think we do. I think we do know that. <laughs> we do know that. So, um, yes, yeah, so that, that that was quite a, a haunting scene, that particular bit at the end. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. OK, I might go back and read the last scene. then. OK, thank you very much. Alice. What we'll do now, we'll go into a break. And when we come back, we will hear uh, Felicity's view on Hilary Mantel's Mirror and the Light. Thank you. Welcome back to October's Scribbles Hour, where we are reviewing Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light with our usual panel of Alice Goulding, Felicity Radcliffe, Jean Fairburn and myself. We've listened to the review from Alice and from Jean, and now we're going to listen to Felice. So off you go, Felice. Thanks, Sue. My first thought on um, reading this is it's a novel that is almost without structure. It begins with the beheading of Anne Boleyn and ends with the beheading of Thomas Cromwell. So you've got sort of two beheadings bookending it. But apart from that, I really struggled to discern 
any sort of structure or form to it at all. It just sort of flows forward. And I found that quite difficult to cope with. I know we said earlier, or they said earlier in the Guardian review, that Hilary Mantel's trajectory was forward, but it was forward in quite an unstructured way. And that didn't particularly work for me, I have to say. Obviously, it relies on you knowing the main facts of the historical context. But I think if you happen not to know those facts, it would be quite an incomprehensible book. If you're a person writing a book, just a normal novel, as opposed to a historical novel, you just couldn't get away with that. You, nobody would understand what you're on about. So it's it, she's got, got quite a luxury of knowing that her readers actually are going to be familiar with the main elements of the story. Sort of moving on to the style, stylistically, there was some things that jarred with me. Primarily, when she was writing dialogue, she would quite often say, he, Cromwell, to kind of emphasise the fact that he was it was him talking as opposed to anybody else. And I found that really jarred with me. I think if she had structured the dialogue correctly, she wouldn't need to do that. You know, you would know who was talking. So I found that I found that a bit irritating. Now, I don't know if it's me, if I'm incredibly thick, but I did find it quite difficult at times to work out what was going on in the various subplots. So the whole subplot around the king's niece, Meg Douglas, I found it very difficult to know exactly what was going on there. It made me feel as though there was quite a lot that was going over my head. I don't know if that was just me. It wasn't helped. I don't think, Fliss, I don't think it was just you, believe me. Yeah, and it wasn't helped by the fact that most of the characters had more than one name. So they would have nicknames. They often had at least one other name. So it's often quite difficult to work out who you're at, who it's actually referring to. Apologies if I'm deficient, but I did struggle with that. You're um, not deficient at all. Come on, please. <laughs> you can be negative about a review. You don't have to make excuses. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Well, I would just go for it then. I mean, the, the whole book did make me feel incredibly grateful to be living in the 21st century as opposed to the 16s. If I had been in the 16th century, I would much rather be a poor peasant toiling in the fields than one of these poor characters you know, scheming away in court terrified of what the king was going to do to them completely at the whim of his capricious behavior I just absolutely such an awful way to live I'd rather have been you know hoeing turnips than doing that um <laughs> especially you know the lives that the women had as just baby making machines she really brought that home to you actually let's give it to Hillary she really did make that quite apparent the awful lives that people have, particularly the women. And it really highlighted for me what an amazing achievement it was for Elizabeth I, when actually she came to the throne, reigned for such a long time, totally kicked ass, made change, made the role her own. That's amazing, given the climate that she was coming into and the amount of antipathy there must have been. It made, it made me think, just how incredible that achievement was. And I prob probably wouldn't have reflected on all those things if it hadn't have been, been for the book. Having said all that, I did not manage to finish it. 
And I'm normally quite a tenacious and energetic reader, but I just couldn't get through it. I did find myself falling asleep when I was trying to read it. So I do apologise, but I found it quite a good cure for insomnia. (laughs) Now, I think the Guardian reviewer mentioned The Emperor's New Clothes. I actually had that same thing written down in my notes that... No, it wasn't. It wasn't the garden review. It was in the negative review mentioned the emperor. Oh yes, sorry, sorry. The, the yes, the um, the guy from the New York Times. Yeah, uh, I think he he and I feel the same way. I found myself thinking, I just don't get it. I don't know why it's so popular. I totally would not say that it's one of the masterpieces of the 21st century. You know, even if there's not another book written for the whole of the 21st century, I wouldn't put it among the masterpieces. And it's not like I don't like historical fiction. I thought Hamlet Hamlet was brilliant. I love Philippa Gregory. I think she's very good. I just don't get why she's so popular. I've read Wolf Hall. I didn't like that either. I haven't read the middle volume in the trilogy, I do admit but I just really don't don't get it. I mean, I think some of her imagery is brilliant. She can definitely write, although I find her style of writing a bit overblown and self-indulgent. And I agree with Alice that I think it could have been a much shorter book. I think she needs editors who aren't, aren't afraid to edit her, I would say. I don't think it's because I didn't understand the religious context or anything. You know, I'm I'm a Catholic myself, so I understand the whole sort of purgatory and all all these kinds of things. I just couldn't really get on with it. Having said that, I enjoyed some of the local references, you know, the references to Hinching Brook, the references to Kim Bolton, which is just down the road from where I live, and Peterborough as well. You know, there's a nice little bit of humour where she says something about, oh, where's Catherine? She's in Peterborough, which actually, you know, it's quite a nice little moment. But overall, I really did struggle with this one, I'm afraid. Well, that really surprises me, Fliss. That really does surprise me. Surprise me. But there you are. That's what you think, which is great. So three totally <laughs> different reviews. And um, I think more three against than four. Jean, thanks. You're, you're back. Lovely to see you. <laughs> Did you hear what Felicity said? Yes. Are we still friends, Jean? Of course. <laughs> I love you, Felicity. We all, we're all friends. We all love each other. And that's what's so interesting about Book Club <laughs> is that we all can give our views. And that is what's so fascinating. Well, I think, Jean, uh, I think Felicity, uh, sorry, Felicity, Jean, that we have three, we have one definitely against and two never read her again. And and you're it's the most it's one of the masterpieces of this century, Jean. Your well, yeah. comments, please. I think just because of the amount of work that she's put in. Well, just because you put a huge amount of work into it, Jean, doesn't mean that it's going to be a masterpiece. But the depth, the detail. <laughs> well, you can get that from just going through all the history books and writing ad infinitum. Yeah, but it's actually writing the thing down and it's got humour I just think it will be perceived as doesn't mean to say it is but at the end of the day you're only as good as what your critics say about you <laughs> that is another another we could do hours on that one you're only as good as the critics say about you my word Jean. 
I've recently been reading a novel by Lucy Worsley, who is a historian. She's, and she's brilliant. Writes, she I writes know. factual history books. And I have to say, I enjoyed this her factual history book a lot more than the Hilary Mantle one. There's a lot more humour in Lucy Worsley. Although, I mean, Hilary Mantle did have the odd bit, but it was tough going, that one. Definitely. I think when, sorry, Jean, to interrupt, but when you look at um, Hilary Mantel being interviewed, she's so intense and so just, well, yeah, intense. And so her book is, is it just comes across as exactly the same. It intense, is, yeah. And she looks, she looks slightly fragile to me. I don't know what you feel. She, well, she couldn't have any children. I must say, do you remember the fury about... Um... Mrs. Thatcher. She talked about the. She wrote a book on the assassination of Mrs. Thatcher. M- Mantel did. Yeah. Did she? Which I thought was rather outrageous. Actually, I went off her then. But I'm so enamoured of that book that I have bought. I've got three Henry Mantles over there. I've got both Wolf Hall and the middle one bodies. But I've also bought mantel pieces. Wow. And she used to clothes that's that's cruel my lovely <laughs> what a sad life you're going to say what a sad life <laughs> <laughs> not at all not at all whatever floats your boat Jean you know that whatever floats your boat she used not to but but I think it's very interesting because it it does track the reformation the um terrible trouble they had getting an English version of the bible for ordinary people to read because, of course, it was the priesthood only that used to interpret what God said. Interestingly, funnily enough, my brother-in-law, some people know, some people don't, he's Catholic. And when his mother dies, his father spent pounds and pounds for getting her masses to be said to ensure that she got to the right place, which I thought was, well, <laughs> it means the church was just a business. But I was amazed that his father, who's quite astute and not one for wasting money, would actually spend hundreds of pounds on masses, as in religious masses. I found that very interesting. And of course, for Henry VIII, it was just split loyalties. He couldn't bear split loyalties. He was the boss and that was it. Yeah, Jean, I accept that totally. And this is all historical fact. You didn't need to read Hilary Mantel's trilogy to know all of that. That's what I'm saying. I do accept everything that you're saying. And you're saying, oh, because she did so much research and, you know, and, and you're bringing up all the things that happened at that period of time. But you can get this in, his, in historical, factual books. It doesn't have to be written around a novel. It is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well can... a novel, to me again, a novel is a book that I want to continue reading. I think, God, this is interesting. This is fascinating. I mean, I love historical novels. I love Philippa Gregory. I enjoyed Antonia, was it Antonia Fraser's? She did Mary Queen of Scots and some others. And I read all of those many, many, many years ago. And they were really interesting books. But I just found this so laboring. It's been on and on, and I thought, no. It's because it's written in that modernist style where they get rid of science. Is that what you call it? That's what you call it. Yeah, it's modernist modernism you get rid of all the signposts and you just bung in thousands of um memories Here's okay all right so what did you think of your your fellow book clubs reviews of this i'm quite surprised actually <laughs> <laughs> come on I'm then quite, spill it i mean come out with um, it 
Well, Alice is a um, scientist, so she has a scientist view, which would irritate, quite rightly so. Um, Phyllis is a woman, perhaps of maybe not more sensitivity, how can I say that, but of sensitivity. So (laughs) she's laughing. And um, I'm quite surprised, actually. I thought you'd say, oh, I love it, but I don't hold it against you. We're still friends. And me, Jean Fairburn? Well, I'm still, I've got still got singed eyebrows, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I'm coughing, I'm coughing. Okay. No, I haven't really, no. So are you oh, no. rushing to um, read the next Hilary Mantel novel, ladies? I will. I know you will. I don't think the other two will. No, no, no I'm afraid not. <laughs> uh, no, 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 me. okay thank you so much now this is the end of part two in part three we're going to go through the bestseller list so i'm going to just finish this now uh, and see you in a minute welcome back to part three of october scribbles with my normal panel of felicity radcliffe alice gording and jean fairburn where in the first two parts we reviewed hillary mantel's the mirror and the light okay ladies so I'm looking at the top 10 uh, non-fiction and the top 10 fiction books for this week. Top 10 non-fiction, number one, And Away, Bob Mortimer. Bob Mortimer's life was trundling along happily until suddenly in 2015, he was diagnosed with a heart condition that required immediate surgery and forced him to cancel an upcoming tour. Right, number two, Guinness World Records, fully revised and updated and with a bright new design, Guinness World Records 2022, provides a fascinating snapshot of our world today. Their editors have chosen to create the book with environmental issues at the forefront of their mind. So they open with a chapter exploring what's happening to our ecosystem and what superlative lengths people are going to make a difference. Number three, how to bake anything gluten-free, Becky Excel. Are you avoiding gluten but yearn for fluffy cakes, fresh bread, filled donuts, game-changing pastries and mind-blowing desserts? Number four, Rutherford and Fry's Complete Guide to Absolutely Everything, Abridged. In Rutherford and Fry's Comprehensive Guidebook, they tell the complete story of the universe and absolutely everything in it, skipping over some of the boring parts. This is a celebration of the weirdness of the cosmos, the strangeness of humans, and the fact that amid all the mess, we can somehow make sense of life. That could be actually quite interesting. Number five, Storyteller, Tales of Life and Music by David Grohl. And this is a a note from the author. The joy that I have felt from chronicling these tales is not unlike listening back to a song that I have recorded and can't wait to share with the world or reading a primitive journal entry from a stained notebook or even hearing my voice bounce between the kiss posters on my wall as a child. Mm. Number six. That that sounds like it's the must for Foo Fighters fans. Exactly. Exactly. Six. Taste. My life through food. Stanley Tookie. T-U-C-C-I. From award-winning actor and food obsessive Stanley Tookie comes an intimate and charming memoir of life in and out of the kitchen. Before Stanley Tookie became a household name with The Devil Wears Prada, The Hunger Games and The Perfect Negroni, Negroni? he grew up in an Italian-American family that spent every night around the table. Number seven, Audacity by Catherine Ryan. That's the comedian, Catherine Ryan. In her own words, I've come to accept that being audacious is a gift I can't escape. People know my onstage comedy persona or my scripted ballsy characters and wrongly assume that at home 
I must stomp around all day in designer dresses, effiscorating those who dare to cross my path and denouncing the existence of men in general. But mostly, I'm just eating pickles and being nice to some dogs. Whatever strangers think of me is fine with me. Uh, Number eight, my favourite, the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse. A reminder of the most important things in life, a book of hope for uncertain times, enter the world of Charlie's four unlikely friends, discover their story and their most poignant life lessons. Number nine, this match is true, Miriam Margolis. Now this I will have as one of my books. I think she's fabulous, Miriam Margolis. I went online and the book is about 12 quid, which I'm not prepared to spend. So when it's my turn again, the books will have come down in price because I'll buy a second-hand one. After winning actor, voice of everything from Monkey to the Cadbury's Camel Rabbit, creator of a myriad of unforgettable characters from Lady Whiteadder to Professor Sprout, Miriam Mongolia's OBE is the nation's favourite and naughtiest treasure. Now, at the age of 80, she has finally decided to tell her extraordinary life story and it's well worth the wait. And I'm sure it is because she's totally un-PC and I think she's just brilliant. She just adores Dickens and she's just an amazing lady. So that will be not this uh, choice for me, but the next choice for me. And then finally, together, Memorable Meals Made Easy, Jamie Oliver. Now, I have this book. It's being televised. I think it's on Channel 4 at the moment. And the recipes are gorgeous. Being with our loved ones has never felt so important. And great food is the perfect excuse to get together. Each chapter features a meal from curry night to last minute feast, garden lunch to autumnal fair with a simple, achievable menu that can be mostly prepped ahead. I do like Jamie Oliver. I used to live near um, Clavering, which is where his parents' uh, restaurant was. They're not there anymore. And I do love his food, and I think he's charming. Um, The fact that he lost his restaurant business and lost millions and millions. But he he comes across very well on camera, and um, I I just love listening to him. So anyway, if you like cooking together, I got the book, and it's very, very good. Okay, so that's the non-fiction ladies. Any comments on any of those that you want to say anymore? Nope. Okay. So now we go to fiction. So I want to know if you know who all these people are. So number one, A Slow Fire Burning by Laura Hawkins. Laura has spent most of her life being judged. She's seen as hot-tempered, troubled, a loner. Some even call her dangerous. Miriam knows that just because Laura is witness leaving the scene of a horrific murder with blood on her clothes, that doesn't mean she's a killer. Bitter experience has taught her how easy it is to get in the wrong place at the wrong time. Number two, Apples Never Fall, Leanne Moriarty. The Delaney family love one another dearly. It's just that sometimes they want to murder each other. (laughs) Joy Delaney and husband Stan have done well. Four wonderful grown-up children, a family business to envy. The golden years of retirement are ahead of them. Number three, beautiful world, where are you? Sally Rooney. Alice, a novelist, meets Felix, who works in a distribution warehouse, and asks him if he'd like to travel to Rome with her. In Dublin, her best friend Eileen is getting over a breakup and slips back into flirting with Simon, a man she has known since childhood. Number four, Crossroads, Jonathan Franzan. It's December the 23rd, 1971. A heavy weather is forecast for Chicago. Russ Hildebrand, the associate pastor of a liberal suburban church, is on the brink of breaking free of a marriage he finds joyless, unless his wife Marion 
who has her own secret life beats him to it. You won't like that, Jinx. It's a moment. Uh, Sue, can I can I just um, step in there? Can you just remind me what was the title of that, please? Crossroads. Crossroads. Yeah. Okay. So I would say that Jonathan Franzen's novel, The Corrections, um, for me is certainly one of the masterpieces of the second half of the 20th century. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. Uh, so I would definitely, I would definitely be reading. I've read others of him that I didn't like so much, but I like the corrections so much that I will definitely be reading a new book by him. Okay. So, sorry, I was just going to say the previous yep. book was the one that was really controversial, the Sally Rooney one, because Sally Rooney refused to have it translated into Hebrew yes. because of the Israeli-Palestine crisis. So I think yep. that's... That kind of has kind of eclipsed the actual book itself, really, the controversy. Number five, a slow fire burning, Kerry Maniscalco. Laura has spent most of her life being judged. She's seen as a hot-tempered, troubled alona. Some even call her dangerous. Miriam knows that just because Laura is witness leaving the scene of a horrific murder with blood on her clothes, that doesn't mean she's a killer. Bitter experience has taught her how easy it is to get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Number six, Last graduate, Naomi Novik. The dark school of magic has always done its best to devour its students, but now that Elle has reached her final year and somehow won herself a handful of allies along the way, it suddenly developed a very particular craving. Number seven, man who died twice, Richard Osman. Oh, you say? It's the following Thursday... Elizabeth has received a letter from an old colleague, a man with whom she has a long history. He's made a big mistake and he needs her help. His story involves stolen diamonds, a a violent mobster and a very real threat to his life. As bodies start piling up, Elizabeth enlists Joyce, Ibrahim and Ron in the hunt for a ruthless murderer. Now, do you think you will read that, ladies? No, Alice, not from Fliss, not Jean. Fun at times. I think it's very funny. It will be funny because the one-liners from the Thursday Club was funny. (laughs) Number eight, New Kingdom, Wilbur Smith. A brand new ancient Egyptian novel from the master of adventure fiction and global number one bestseller author Wilbur Smith. In the heart of Egypt, under the watchful eye of the gods, a new power is rising in the city of Lum. Huey lives an enchanted life. The favoured son of a doting father and a ruler in waiting of the great city. His fate is set. Number nine, Once Upon a Broken Heart, Stephanie Garber. From the number one Sunday Times bestselling author of the Caravel series, the first book in a new series about love, curses and the lengths that people go for happily ever after. For as long as she can remember, Evangeline Fox has believed in happily ever after until she learns that the love of her life is about to marry another and her dreams are shattered. Anyone who's brave enough to have a title as cheesy as that probably does deserve <laughs> sort of reading the first few pages to see what it's like. Well, she's in the top 10. And mm. number 10, Sharp's assassin, Bernard Cornwell. Lieutenant Colonel Sharp is a man with a reputation, born in the gutter, raised a foundling. He joined the army 21 years ago and it's been his home ever since. He's a loose cannon, but his unconventional methods make him a valuable weapon. So when the dust still settling after the Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington needs a favour, he turns to Sharp. There you are. 
There you are, ladies. Those are the top 10 nonfiction and the top 10 fictions. Anything more to say on any of that? Oh, silence from all my three ladies. Nothing to say at all. Okay. So it's my choice for next month, ladies. I've chosen two books, Sally Rooney's Normal People, because I've read a lot about that. It was very, very popular. Has anybody read Sally Rooney? I no. Think, I think I might have read that. I'm not 100% sure, though. Well, obviously, it didn't make an impression of you if you can't no. remember if you read it or not. I've got, a vague, I've got a vague feeling I might have read it about two or three years back. I'm not sure. It depends on how okay. old it is. Uh, and Jean? No, I've never heard of her. Called normal people, Sally normal. Rooney. Normal people, um, because she's got this new book come out, which Fliss was talking about. Um, my friend Penny here was saying that it's been made into a TV series, which oh, might it? be might be where you um, where you're thinking of it, Alice. Maybe you saw the TV. I don't watch much TV, so I've uh, been on TV. And so that's one book, and the other one is Diary of an MP's Wife by Sasha Swire. It's very modern and it's just, just been published. And I think it's going to be very, very amusing. So ladies, which one would you like me to, to um, review? Your choice, Sue. <laughs> well, one is nonfiction, one is fiction. Now, you know me, I prefer nonfiction to fiction. But again, Sally Rooney, um, I think I'd like to have a read because everybody's gone mad about her. But there again, everybody loves Andrew Lloyd Webber. I can't stand him or any of his musicals. So... Fans of the Opera is wonderful. Oh! <laughs> He's the biggest that. plagiarist of all time. <laughs> My personal preference would be the Sally Rooney. And also Lloyd Webber, totally get where you're coming from. But I like Captain Noah and his floating zoo, which they wrote before they became famous. And it's lovely. Well, Rice and Rice and Weber, Lloyd Weber. Both of them. You see, yeah. when when Tim Rice and Lloyd Weber were together, it, they, they, it wasn't so steep. They weren't plagiarists. They really did their own thing. But as soon as he went on his own, I mean, you know, every single piece of music you hear from his musicals, you can you can relate it to something else. I mean, look at Cats, for God's sake. You know, the, 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 that, the that, that is whole, that, that is not a good. Phantom of the Opera is the masterpiece. It's the only one worth it. How many that. tunes? How many tunes are number ones from hand, from Phantom of the Opera, Jean? Yeah, but it's an opera. So, <laughs> so um, what excuse well, is that? This is an. It's not an opera as operas are very known. This is this is for the masses, Jean. Yeah, I don't, I don't I know whether this is. It. I don't know whether this is funny or not. But my friends took me to see that. Was it called Les Miserables when oh, it came yeah. out? Les, the film. Les Miserables, yeah. Yeah, and when they we, we got into the cinema and they all started singing in this film, and I'm going, "Is this a musical?" And they're going, "Yes." <laughs> and I just sat there for two and a half hours, wishing that I wasn't there because <laughs> it was awful. Oh, and um, they, they absolutely loved it. My friends thought it was fantastic, but. I've never been allowed to forget this, the fact that we went to sat, I sat through this musical not realising that I was going to see a musical. <laughs> so, but you don't, like, you don't like poetry either. I don't like poetry either. Musicals and poetry are definitely <laughs> not my thing. 
Let's choose Normal People by Sally Rooney, okay? That's going to be the review for next month. Purely because she's so popular at the moment, I'm going to have a read and see if I like it or not. It's probably going to be very lightweight. She's Irish, Jean, by the way. Well, one of the one of the critics of her latest book, where I've already um, I've already forgotten the title, suggested that the Israelis had had a lucky escape by it not being translated into Hebrew. <laughs> but I shall uh, I shall I shall keep an open mind though for normal people. Well, I didn't go for the latest book, which is Beautiful World. Where are you? And I thought, well, let's have a go at normal people first of all and see how that goes. Great. All right, ladies. Well, thank you so much. As always, your insightfulness is just wonderful. It's lovely talking to all of you. And I look forward to talking to you at the end of November, where we will discuss Sally Rooney's Normal People. Thank you very much for your time, ladies. Keep well. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.